Okay, everybody. Um, this is our second podcast this week after our uh, brief foray into the world of the Sundance Film Festival. And we are going to be talking about Darkest Hour, uh, Joe Wright's uh, 2017 political drama about the initial days of the Churchill administration in England in World War II. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. Um, do you want to give a summary of this? Sure. So the, the movie's about that the early-ish days in, in 1940, around the time of Dunkirk, when um, Churchill took over from Chamberlain as prime minister. And uh, Chamberlain famously or infamously um, was at the time negotiating um, or trying to negotiate with Hitler and, you know, never Cham Neville Chamberlain went down sort of in history as sort of being trying to appease and I guess sort of has a general, um, general uh, appearance of being weak. Um, and Churchill was sort of fire breathing at the time and maintained throughout that Hitler was uh, not anybody that could be uh, bargained with and they couldn't said they'd have to fight. And, and in the end, um, during 1940, when the Allies were fighting and the Germans were racing across Europe in the Blitzkrieg, um, Churchill, Chamberlain resigned and Churchill became named as prime minister. And this is about the first weeks of his administration as prime minister and the difficulties he faced um, within the parliamentary structure with the with the king and with decisions to how to preserve the military at Dunkirk. And, uh, and, there's, and there's also an undercurrent of that the monarchy doesn't really want him. Parliament is not backing him. Like he's an unusual and somewhat unexpected choice, meaning he's been around so long and he was essentially on the outs because people never really forgot the scandal at Gallipoli, which he was tied to. Right. And, you know, he's 65 years old when he became prime minister. I mean, he had been um, in charge of the admiralty you know, in charge of the British Navy recently, but he'd come and gone from government. He'd been in parliament. He'd been in the military for quite a, quite a long time when he was a younger man. And he, uh, he came for, you know, he was, he was an aristocrat. He came from a, a very, um, high, highly placed, uh, British family. He's descendant of the Duke of Marlborough. And he, um, you know, he he lived a an upper class existence in Britain for all his years. He'd been an officer in the service and was in public life, and he he was sort of out of favor, I guess, when he came in because he was thought of as prickly, as a bit harsh, perhaps. Um, but he really did call it properly, you know, and he was a a great wartime leader. I mean, he, he was a great wartime prime minister, obviously, as everybody knows the story. And um, he was really what England needed, even if it, they weren't aware of it at the time when he came into power, which is a big theme of the film. Right. And some of them did were aware of it, which I think is why he was named. So I, you know, I think, um, 
I'm actually not sure how much of the plot elements in the movie were true, but you know, the, to me, the, what I liked about the movie, and I think what everybody liked about the movie the most is Gary Oldman's performance. Um, and, and I texted you earlier today when we were gearing up for this, that if Gary Oldman is not at least nominated for best actor for yeah. this film, he has been completely robbed. Oh, I, I, I would be really surprised if he was not nominated or, or he may even win. I mean, you know, the, the problem is absolutely unrecognizable. I mean, the only thing taking on this role is about as difficult as being Churchill <laughs> in 1940, <laughs> because I mean, talk about big shoes to fill and, and uh, high expectations. I mean, everybody knows what Churchill sounded like, what he looked like, what his demeanor was like. Everybody knows what the speech, uh, the, you know, we shall fight them on the beaches, fight them on the beaches, right? Everybody knows what that speech sounds like. And everybody knows at least the skeleton of the story of Churchill's ascent and his success and of his fall as a, as a peacetime prime minister and which he was not nearly successful at. And, um, right. Cause he was in fact voted out of office fairly quickly after the war ended and had a, he had another stint as prime minister in the fifties and was, uh, troubled, but he, um, I mean, everybody knows the story and, and, Gary Oldman has to step into this role and inhabit Churchill without seeming like an actor trying to play Churchill and without seeming like an actor trying too hard to play Churchill or as a caricature or as um, failing to portray him properly or as perhaps being so close that he's, he doesn't seem to animate Churchill. I mean, there are so many pitfalls in, in, in doing this performance that the, the odds really are stacked against you, just as the, you know, British soldiers were stranded on the beach at Dunkirk. I mean, <laughs> Goldman really could have been crushed. And he, he rises to the occasion spectacularly. I mean, he, he's, he's completely riveting. And it, it gets better and better. As the movie goes on, you really are drawn in by his performance because Churchill has early sort of ups and downs. Mostly right? So downs. He, right. And, you know, he begins to get depressed and he really he's sort of almost at his wits end. And then he sort of comes back. And I'm not sure how there's a there's a turning point scene where he he goes on the subway, the underground in London, and he talks to the people. And and he really I actually thought that. The, the subway scene is by far the best scene in the entire film. It was really good. I wonder if it really happened. Uh, I, who knows? Who knows? But I certainly don't know. But I, I remember thinking when I walked out of it that that scene was what really stuck with me. And the way he was interacting with people, men, women, young, old, all walks of life, and they all wanted to fight. And he really internalized that the people were with him, even if they didn't know it yet. Like, they wanted to fight. They didn't want to negotiate. They didn't want to surrender. They wanted to fight the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, he his ins, they, they validated his instincts. So they, they were with him much more than his peers, right? And that, that was sort of his turning point. And it's a great scene. And, and then 
from that point on, maybe from the point where the king comes to him and, and visits with him, he picks up from his nadir and sort of recuperates and figures out exactly what he needs to do finally successfully, which is to rouse the country to, to war. And part of it, too, is they're all looking at Chamberlain throughout the movie. Parliament is looking at Chamberlain to see if he buys in and if he agrees or at least doesn't oppose Churchill. And that's a big undercurrent, too, because Chamberlain is kind of working against him behind the scenes the whole movie. And then at the end of the movie, when he gives his We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech, Chamberlain backs off of his intended plan to depose him, which is very, very telling. His his harshest critic, the guy he just took power from, realizes he can't he can't stand in the way of Churchill the way he has they see the potential that he has to rally the British people. Right. I, I think that probably in real life, I mean, he was chosen to be prime minister because people the leaders around him suspected that he was the man for the job in in the war in wartime. And I think maybe he frightened them a little bit because he was talking very brashly, very aggressively about fighting when I think maybe a right. lot of the British people could see the wisdom and maybe we can negotiate a settlement. Maybe Hitler will leave us alone. I actually thought that the best line in the whole movie, and you probably know which line I'm leading up to, there's a great line where he's arguing against negotiation or concessions towards Hitler. And he says, you don't argue with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Right. I thought, I thought about that for a day afterwards. What an incredible image. What an incredible choice of words. How do you argue with that kind of logic? You can't because he's right. Right. But which is exactly why Neville Chamberlain has not fared nearly as well no. in history, even though the Chamberlain, but Chamberlain's his, he, he didn't, he wasn't traitorous. I mean, he meant well. And, and you have to remember that this, this this is only 20 years or a little over 20 years after World War 1. World War 1 was it absolutely decimated Europe. I mean, just vast quantities of of young men and even middle-aged men, I mean, were were completely killed. A whole generation disappeared essentially. And they were just getting over that. Following that, you know, the I mean, Europe was was absolutely decimated by world war one and it ground on year after year after year and you know there's a reason they call it the war to end all wars so the thought of of having to do that again uh and and with the same uh alignment of forces in many ways right I mean, talk about well, I, I mean, we're certainly not the first people to say this, but many historians view World War One or World War Two as one continuous conflict with a pause in the middle. Yeah, and you know, but but the world had really changed, you know, between between the two, and and the the Germans had you know developed a modern mechanized warfare in between, which is why they swept across Europe, and you know, the French were squatting there on the Maginot Line, which was and, not effective. Right. I mean, the, the Germans went, you know, they went around through Belgium. Through Belgium. I mean, they, they advanced. Uh, they were absolutely unstoppable. And so the the British people were looking at 
you know, with the early victories of the Wehrmacht, the German, the, the British people were looking at fighting an enemy. They were looking at World War One again with an enemy that was even better. And right with 20 more years of technology and and, and really Stuka bombers. Right. They really made a quantum quantum leap in uh, military strategy, technology. Uh, they were they were absolutely a dominant military and premier military at the time. And again, if and, you read, for example, Chamberlain's online bios, he basically had a fantastic career until he was prime minister and his entire premiership is dominated by how should they respond to the aggressive acts of Nazi Germany. And for better or for worse, history records Chamberlain's policies of appeasements as the wrong thing, which honestly, they were. They were wrong. They were wrong, but at the time, they were understandable. And then he wasn't, he meant appropriately. I mean, he meant well. I, I just, you know, obviously he was wrong. He's on the wrong end of history, but you know it's uh, it's a tough situation. I think it's easy to forget. Oh, of course. I mean, you know, and after you know, most of the British Empire, it was teetering after World War One. I. I mean, they they lost most of their strength from World War One, where they were destroyed, and then World War Two killed what was left. I mean, they they became a second world uh, power. After World War Two, no disrespect to our uh, English listeners. <laughs> no, it's no secret they know. But you know, but, just to bring it back to Oldman for a second, I mean the the true miracle of this film is is Oldman's performance. But he can't have done that performance without the way that he is made up. There is no CGI in this film. And he is wearing some of the most convincing makeup I can recall. Like a lot of times you see a movie and they do a lot of makeup and you're like, oh, that's very good makeup. But you're so conscious and aware of the makeup itself. And yeah. he looks absolutely convincing. Joe Wright said that they worked on the makeup for a long time. They tried two or three different versions where either he looked too, his face looked too round or he looked too much like Gary Oldman and with successive iterations of the makeup, they were finally able to get it right. And they had to do enough makeup so that he looked like Churchill, but not so much makeup that Oldman couldn't act underneath. And he apparently he shaved his head so that his scalp could be real. So that's mm. his bald scalp with just a little bit of hair added on top of it. But he shaved his head for the duration of the film. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how they made it look, how they struck that perfect balance of appearance and expressibility. It sounds like it was quite a lot of work. Um, I read it. Sorry, I listened to a really interesting uh, interview with Joe Wright. And he talked about why he made this and he had a very unusual answer. You know, usually when you watch these type of interviews or you listen, they give you some sort of pat answer. Oh, I've always been interested in Churchill, blah, blah, blah. But he had a really interesting answer. And he said that he had had a couple of big hits early in his career, Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, um, et cetera. And then he made, in 2015, he made Pan, uh, which is, a, a, I believe, a retelling of the Peter Pan story. Uh, which right. bombed, which it bombed, was panned, 
Right. It was panned and it bombed. Um, it failed a major film again. And he was really at rock bottom. And then he stumbled upon the idea of doing the Churchill film and the screenplay. And he identified with Churchill as someone who people had lost faith in. And that's why he did the movie, because he basically felt like he was in the same position as Churchill, like he still had great things in him, but people couldn't see it, which I thought was an unusually insightful answer to a pretty pat question of why did you make this film? He said the other thing that he said that was really interesting is he said that he insisted on rehearsals. And it was interesting to me because he was. I don't know if he was intentionally or, or even conscious, but he was echoing some of Kubrick's comments. And for example, Kubrick was famous for his multiple takes and Kubrick wasn't doing that to be mean. Kubrick has said, had said many times before his death that he felt that actors could only really find the part after 10, 20, 30 iterations of a scene. Then they really could get down to it. And for this movie, Wright made them rehearse for a month because he felt that the rehearsal was where they would work it all out so that when they actually had the cameras rolling, they would have solved all the problems of how all the scenes should be done. So it's sort of a similar idea to Kubrick's, but he said in the, he said in this discussion that most movies don't have rehearsals at all, or if they do, they're extremely limited. And there's a lot of, well, the magic will happen when the camera rolls. And he was very opposed to that because he came out of theater and he'd done a lot of plays. And he said, in a play, you rehearse and you practice till it's perfect. So that's, in his estimation, part of the reason he got such good performances out of everybody was because they did it over and over and over so that they had really worked it all out before the cameras rolled. It was a great interview. Hmm. You know, the, 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 Act the British actors. There's such a, a large stable of such incredibly good skilled actors, though that they still pull things out in film and in I'm sure in tel- you know in television series where they don't actually rehearse that much. Uh, maybe he said that one of the major reasons that most films don't rehearse is that you don't pay the actors for rehearsals. So if you don't pay them, they don't do it. Right. I mean, they only, you know, time is money. They have certain amount of time and they want to use it to shoot scenes and film them. Right. And actors want to go from one project to the next without a gap if they can at all. And somebody like Gary Oldman or Christian Scott Thomas in this, they probably have a lot of things on the back burner that they could do. So for them to give a month of their time to practice was a big deal. Right. Um, I saw this movie um, on, I believe, a weeknight and it was jammed. People really were excited to see this. People wanted to see this. Uh, the crowd was mostly middle aged, as you would expect for people, middle aged or older, as you expect for people who are interested in a political drama about World War II. But, but you know, just sort of taking the temperature of the theater, I saw it in. I don't know it was like where you saw it, but people were extremely, extremely happy with it and riveted, just riveted. Like people stayed and watched the credits. It was so good at the end. Mm no, I mean it was you didn't I, I, I think I liked it more than you did. Yeah, I I, I, I loved his performance, um, Gary Ullman's performance. I thought that that it it may have been over dramatized in the sense that probably the the real story was more dramatic and fascinating than they made it in the movie. I mean the movie, you know, they there's there's some fog. You know, every time they show Parliament, they they got the fog machine going. They got some really high key lighting. Um, 
they set up conflicts. They set up. Um, I, I just I wonder, you know, I wonder how much drama there really was. Obviously, there was there was political drama with Churchill and the the conservative party. Um, where some of them, I'm sure, wanted to support someone else or wanted to be prime minister or wanted whatever, or were concerned their constituents would uh, be unhappy. But I just, I'm not, I, I'm not entirely sure that the the real story was as rife with um, conflict that the movie was. And I think that it it felt a little over dramatized at times. Hmm. I I liked it because Churchill is usually presented fairly one dimensionally in movies, and I liked the way this showed him settling into the role of prime minister and making some mistakes. And for for example, the way he chews at his secretary, and he has to be told like you have to be nice to people now. You're the you're the you're the prime minister and. The way that he is shown not having a tremendous amount of support early on and his personal habits, his drinking in the morning, et cetera, his keeping his funny schedule, the way that they showed him in the bunker. I don't know. Like, I thought this was an unusual and interesting way to present him. Yeah, I just think that, the you know, most of those stories about Churchill are, at this point are well known. Probably a, right or have been exaggerated in the media. Right. And for example, um, Ian McNeese, who uh, I'm just thinking of him because he's recently played um, Winston Churchill. Ian McNeese plays Churchill on the modern incarnation of Doctor Who. And it's a very sort of stereotypical version of sort of a cigar chomping, yeah. scenery chewing Churchill. Ian McNeese, by the way, played the Baron in the television miniseries of Dune, not the Frank Herbert movie, but in the miniseries and its sequel. Um, so um, interesting, an interesting sci-fi tie-in from Churchill. <laughs> it's not, but it's again, not Star um, Trek, though. it's not Star Trek, but it's Doctor <laughs> Who. But again, you know, like that's how, that is how Churchill is often portrayed. And I felt that this was a bit of a different portrayal. Like it was, I think I probably seen a half a dozen movies where Churchill was portrayed as a character. And this was, I thought the most three dimensional and human portrayal of the man named Winston Churchill, as opposed to the stereotype of the character named Winston Churchill. Yeah. And for me, I will tell you that the subway scene alone was worth the price of admission. The subway scene's really good, and and you you really cheer Gary Oldman on, especially as the as the movie progresses. Um, I looked it up by the way while we were talking, and the subway scene is fictional. Okay, <laughs> dang it! Yeah, I, I just <laughs> I would have loved that that was true. Yeah, I, I just I just I think I think they they did several things like that. I just uh, I think it's a bit it's a little more than really happened. I I don't think that even his opposition was quite as black and white as it is now. I thought, yeah, that's probably true. But just to say one other point about his opposition, I thought one of the other really interesting things that they did, and again, sort of showing how the movie tried to portray people three-dimensionally, Chamberlain is largely portrayed as not so much the villain, but he's really Churchill's foil working against him behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. 
And then at the end of the movie, when Chamberlain fails to oppose him, you learn very, very close to the end of the film that he is, in fact, dying of cancer. And he is sad to think that, you know, Britain will be plunged into war again as he is soon to pass away. And I thought, you know, a lot of filmmakers would have omitted that scene or just that those few lines of dialogue, but it gave Chamberlain's character dimension and depth. Like, even now, even as he agrees that Churchill is the right person, Chamberlain himself is unhappy with the prospect of Britain being thrust more deeply into the war. I thought that was really clever. And again, I think, you know, they didn't have to do it, but they did it, and it really added a lot to the character of Neville Chamberlain as uh, Ron Pickup played him. Well, he, you know, he says the line uh, that he'll never, he says, I have cancer, I'll never see Britain in peace again. You know, because he right. knows he's, he has a certain amount of time left and the war is going to go on for a while. And, and it's and the implication is he doesn't have a lot of time left. And I think they say in the credits at the end of the little text that he that Chamberlain died six months later. Yeah, which is true. I mean, uh, he, he didn't live very long after he ended his term. I mean, it made me want to see other films by Joe Wright. And when I look through his filmography, I really have not seen much of his uh, prior work. Like, I saw his Pride and Prejudice when it came out in 2005, but I don't think I've seen it since, and I don't really remember it. And yeah. I have not seen, for example, Hannah, Atonement, The Soloist. I certainly didn't see Pan. I think I'll skip that one. But, um, but it made me want to go see his other films because... You know, he's a young guy. I mean, he's only 45 years old. Um, and I, I thought this was, this felt like the work of a much older and much more mature filmmaker for a guy who's only 45. I was really impressed. Well, even, even Pride and, Pre Pride and Prejudice is the, the Kira Knightley uh, version. Right. I, again, and I saw that when it came out, but I barely remember it. Me too. I think it has, a, yeah. that's the one that has a very, very young Shersha Ronan in it. I'm a big Shersha Ronan fan. Um, okay. So that's actually a reason to go back and watch it. And I certainly do like Kira Knightley. I don't think I've ever seen Kira Knightley give a performance that I haven't liked. Yeah. Um, did you know that Kira Knightley has a little itty bitty part in The Phantom Menace? I'm not kidding. Mm. Was that? She's Podme's handmaiden, who's her double. So okay. there's, a, there's a scene or two where. Padme has her handmaiden sit on the throne so that she can run around and do action adventure stuff. And that is a very, very young Kira Knightley. Hmm. And she and her career uh wasn't crushed by being in that movie, which is good. No. <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is well, we're getting a little off topic, but you know, most of the actors in The Phantom Menace managed to survive it. Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman. I mean, the real casualty of The Phantom Menace is Jake Lloyd, the guy who played young Anakin. Um, I think that, that that movie did not help him. Uh, probably put a lot of money in his pocket, but didn't help him in his career as an actor. But um, have you ever seen, by the way, um, A Dangerous Method? That's the no. movie about Freud and Carl Jung. That is such a great movie. Uh, if you ever get a chance, don't don't pass up a chance to see A Dangerous Method. Um, I mean, it's hard to make an exciting movie about Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, and they managed to do it. That's directed, by the way, by David Cronenberg. But if it, she's, they're all good. It's um, 
It's uh, the big three are Kira Knightley, Viggo Mortensen plays uh, Freud, and Michael Fassbender plays Carl Jung. So the three of them are just great to watch. Cool. But anyway, uh, but back to back to Churchill. <laughs> We we went from we went from Churchill to the Phantom Menace to Sigmund Freud. That was good. Um, I don't know. I really liked it. I I will definitely see this again when it comes to video. Um, and this made me want to read more about Churchill. The problem is, you know, the problem with, ironically, one of the problems with reading about Churchill is one of the same problems I've had with reading about Hitler is there are no short biographies. And I'm an avid reader. You're an avid reader. We've talked about a million books offline for the last 30 years. But, I mean, if you go to the Barnes & Noble and you look for a book on Churchill, you know, you're lucky if it's two volumes. Yeah. There's no short works on Churchill that are any good, apparently. Well, I mean, Churchill lived to 90, and that (laughs) that is full of life (laughs) as possible. So if anybody is going to have a long biography, it's going to be Churchill. Yeah, I've, I've, I've obviously I'm very interested in World War Two, and I've read a lot of World War Two books. But it's the same problem with Hitler. All the Hitler biographies, and there's several good ones, but even the even the shorter of the shorter Hitler biographies approach eight nine hundred pages. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on uh, this movie? No, I think it's. Uh, I think it's. It, I, I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I just I wasn't blown away. You hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody can go to Sundance. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I was also kind of felt like I was programmed to like this movie. Like, I'm so interested in World War II. You know, this is coming, you know, on the heels of Dunkirk, yeah. covering many of the same events. You know, these are events that I've always found interesting and a time period I've always found interesting. Sure. Like, like, I was the target audience for this film. Like I'm interested in pretty much everything involving world war two. Um, and to focus on Churchill is just, it's just like a, a feast for me. It's like crack. Yeah, no, I <laughs> look, I mean, you know, not everything can be as good as the Omega man feast of crack, but right, the Omega man or the black. We hole. But Hey, we, have, we haven't referenced the Omega man in a while. <laughs> I think the Omega Man is tied with the black hole for the, <laughs> the the film that we did that we liked the least. Yeah, we got to do some stinkers again, though, because it is entertaining. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think you can only do a stinker if it's if it's a truly great stinker. You know, in the same way that Mystery Science Theater can't just do any movie. They've got to have a special kind of bad movie before they can do it. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Should we wrap there? Yeah. I'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Oh, listen. And before we sign off, just remember, uh, you can contact us at popcorndrinkcombo at gmail.com. You can um, send us recommendations of films you'd like to hear Peter and I review. And if we review your film on air, we will give you a shout out. Also, please give us a review on iTunes. Uh, that's really important as well. So uh, if you like the podcast, please give us a review. And you'll get an invisible T-shirt. <laughs> that Peter will send you from Sarah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.